In this episode of the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast, this is a lesson of when one door closes, another fish in the sea is worth two in the bush. Or to put it more succinctly, how I realise that the instinct that something's wrong is sometimes right. Hello, this is Damien, the tall, friendly atheist dad. I hope you're having a great day, and welcome to the Tall, Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. I initially entered their realm when a thin, pasty man who looked a bit like Joel Osteen if you squint hard enough, but skinnier and paler and way more dorky, came to my table in the university cafeteria for a chat. He was friendly, engaging, intellectual, and we got to talking about religion. At this stage, I was a Christian, but only in speech and in Sunday morning activity. Behind the scenes, well, no guesses to be had there. There are two typical vices for young men at university, those being drugs or hormones, and mine wasn't drugs. So I think, maybe in order to prove my Christian credentials, I agreed to come along to their weekly university student group meetings. The idea of me not being a Christian, despite my lack of doctrinal adherence, was anathema. I came along to the university campus meetings and met the wife of Joel Osteen Light, and I realised then and there that their university outreach group was just them. While they were part of an international church planting movement, they were thin on the ground in both resources and personnel. The first warning sign was when I agreed to attend their own church service. Their church services took place at their home, which immediately led to questions from both my parents and her parents. Aren't they a cult? Of course they're not a cult. They're just a really small group that are really excited about their religious beliefs. Which, in hindsight, is how every cult starts. Over the next few months, my girlfriend and I got to know them better. We seriously look forward to, if not the service itself, the friendship and camaraderie that came after the service's But this goes to show, you can go to two different churches, go to two different church youth groups, but it doesn't guarantee you're a better person. My biggest problem at this stage of my life was my anger. I met Stephanie in my final year of high school. Even though she went to my school, I didn't care for her existence. Until one day, she secretly handed me an envelope that I secretly read during my break time. The contents of that envelope sent the heart of a dorky 17-year-old boy racing. Life continued on after that, but every time I thought of her and what she wrote, the thought of someone falling in love with me became more and more intoxicating. 
It was some weeks after that when she called it quits with her current boyfriend because their relationship was on the rocks. And after that, her and I got together. In the beginning, our relationship had that new relationship glow. I would either walk the three kilometres to her place or wait for her at the school gate most inconvenient for me just so I could see her. And on the weekends and holidays, we would find something fun to do. Maybe go somewhere either by ourselves or with her sisters. I became part of a family. However, in all honesty, it was doomed from the start. In hindsight, I think maybe I fell in love with the idea of being in love rather than treading carefully and consider what I was getting into. Smart decisions weren't her forte, and standing up for myself in the face of suboptimal outcomes wasn't mine. But I was determined to make it work. I saw how my stepdad treated my mum, despite all the childhood trauma that she put him and us through on a regular basis. In short, my stepdad was the gold standard for patience in a relationship, and if I couldn't achieve that gold standard, I was obviously the problem, and that may well have been the hill I eventually died on. Are you sure you want to leave? We don't think it's a good idea. Yes, I've made my mind up, but we wanted to help you develop your ministry. What ministry? And seriously, their line of questioning confused me. I didn't have no ministry. It's not like I was a regular preacher or something. At most, I was a semi-regular in the Sunday morning music team, and I led Bible study a few times at weekly home groups. However, by this stage, they were annoying me as much as I was antagonizing them. After a combined six years in the church group I called home and thought I would be in until my dying days, I decided to walk away. While I enjoyed the friendship of the people at my church, I realized I had to get away from the constrictive environment the leadership created. And for shame, I dedicated so many hours, hours I should have used getting better grades, and dollars, dollars that were tight on either student welfare payments or from my first job, on this church movement. While the theology of this church and its movement was not what would be considered conservative, the environment created by their attitude, which both informed and was informed by their policies and procedures definitely were. Part of the reason for this is that the church movement started in Thailand, a society not known for freedom of expression, and they had a very strong outreach among Southeast Asian university students who themselves were typically from socially conservative families. So, as an Anglo-Saxon, I was the exotic one. The most outward element of control was that any fraternal romance between members of the church had to be run past the leadership. And sure, if they disapproved, you could still go ahead with your relationship if you wanted to, but they're not going to be too keen on it. Don't expect an attaboy and a pat on the head anytime soon. Other things included expected attendance at every Sunday service, at every weekly home group Bible study, as well as at special events, such as university outreach or church-wide prayer meetings, 
And the only valid reason you weren't able to attend the annual Oceania convention was if you were liable to be fired from your job. And even then, I was repeatedly questioned and told that I should come anyway. Their attitude wasn't merely one of, we're here and we're thankful you're here as well. Their attitude was, if you're not in the door 15 minutes before start time, we'll question you about it next time we see you. Their reasoning wasn't just that it was good to regularly meet up together, Hebrews 10.25, but also that the church provided spiritual protection, as per 1 Corinthians 5.5, and also that any chance to fall away from the faith had to be quashed before the root of sin took hold. So once you're in, you're in. Furthermore, if you visited another chapter of that church in the same city without telling someone in your home chapter, that was equivalent to slapping your home chapter in the face. But more than that, it was the doctrinally restrictive environment that annoyed me. The best way I can put it is this. Anything said by either a pastor or a guest preacher is automatically doctrine, which magically found its way into the directives given by the senior pastor soon after. Everyone else had to have their beliefs checked at the door. And this brings me on to their worst trait, a trait I see too often in modern non-denominational Christianity, obedience to authority. In my fundamentalist group, it was expected that you agree with every idea and every vision any of the leadership team had, especially those leaders ranked senior pastor and above. No disagreements were entertained. Now, I ain't no Bible scholar, but even I found some holes I could walk a truck through. The most egregious example was highlighted in a statement in their mission and vision. One million churches by the year 2020. And not just one million churches in general, one million of their churches. And they were dead serious it was going to happen. The worship pastor of my home chapter even wrote a song about it to G us all up. However, something didn't fly when I thought about it. So I sat down one day and crunched some numbers and worked out that if they wanted 1 million churches by the year 2020, the movement was going to have to plant approximately 200 churches a day. At this stage, they were barely planting 10 a year. And the answer given to me when I questioned them about it was, well, we're trusting in God for a miracle. Great planning and foresight there, guys. And this is the thing. They were so fixed on obedience to authority that the oxygen was sucked out of the room. There was no room for creativity or learning. When you learned something, you learned it as they perceived you should learn it. Your walk was their walk. Your faith was their faith. The greatest thing in that church movement was not simply to have a great faith, but to have a great faith like, insert name of leader of ranking senior pastor or above, no one who believed in anything that deviated from the standard, no matter how correct or how justified it was, was never going to rise up. Basically, you were expected to be so obsequious that it was nauseating. In short, I couldn't be myself. And that was the hill I died on. What are you going to do now? Sit, think, be philosophical, learn my lessons. 
The question came from my girlfriend's mum, asking me, at the end of the old rotary telephone, on how I'll handle the breakup. And that answer was my honest reply. It was fun when it started, but plainly speaking, there is an unavoidable truth that her and I were never going to last. If it didn't break apart with regret, it would have exploded instead. The first reason was the fractured relationship Stephanie had with my parents, who themselves were fractured people. Stephanie was the kind of person to casually say something inappropriate, and my mum was the kind of person who took everything she heard personally. It became my mum on one side and Stephanie on the other. Whereas on the other hand, I got along famously with my girlfriend's parents, to the point that even after we broke up, her family gave me their condolences and came to my stepdad's funeral. Second was my winter depression. At this stage, I hadn't been diagnosed, but in hindsight, and especially with my current diagnosis, all the signs were there. Mood swings, inability to feel joy, a short temper, and remember the anger problems I mentioned before? At that stage in my life, I was a pleasant person when everything was in place, but towards the end of the relationship, it became easier and easier for things to fall out of place. I honestly feel bad that I took a lot of it out on her. However, I realized my mistakes, and her and her family forgave me. And thirdly, and most importantly, as time went on, my sense of identity not only slipped away, but it went on life support. I felt like I'd sacrificed too much of what made me, me. Those carefree days I'd spend playing basketball with my mates, gone. Stephanie didn't like my friends, and they didn't like her. After our study sessions with my classmates to boost grades up, I was expected instead to spend time going along with someone who had little concept of balance and nuance. Stephanie didn't like my music. Guess I'd better keep the peace and not listen to it anymore. Decisions I would never have made, I made because it would create an air of disappointment if I didn't comply. Decisions I would have made, I didn't, or couldn't make. But I held on to the relationship because I felt a sense of duty, and I felt like if things fell apart, it would be because I was the failure. The last few weeks were torturous. Neither of us were happy, but also neither of us could bear the thought of breaking up. In the end, my girlfriend met an old friend from primary school, which triggered the same cycle of her writing notes of affection to another guy, breaking up with her current guy, then starting a new relationship with said guy shortly after. Yes, she went behind my back, broke up with me, and hooked up with that friend. And I have to tell you, she did me the biggest favour I could never ask for. So, why did I stay until the bitter end in one toxic relationship, but managed to walk away from another? Because time and experience made me realise that my sense of identity is important. So the lesson for today is, if something's not right, sometimes you're correct.
And also, when one door opens, another fish in the sea is worth two in the bush. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe and rate it on whatever platform you find it on and share it on your social media. Continue the discussion on the discussion post as well as check out more thought-provoking content over at www.tallfriendlyatheistdad.com. If you wish to be a guest, would like me as a guest on your podcast or platform, or even to be a sponsor, head over to the Twitter account for this podcast, at TFADpod. But the best way to support this podcast is to head over to the iTunes bookstore or Google Play and purchase your copy of The Best Religion for the Task at Hand, a response to creationism and why humanism is morally superior to the Bible. You'll be engaged by it. Thank you for listening to the Tall, Friendly, Atheist Dad podcast. Have a great day. Have a great week. See you next time.